0: well good morning oh praise the name of the Lord our God my mother-in-law is 81 today she is say happy birthday to her Uh, she was sitting uh, there on the couch yesterday and she said to me can you believe that I'm 81 years old you know that's a stark reality in a lot of ways isn't it that you're getting older and your the psalmist said to number your days they're important the bible says that 3 score and 10 is given in by measure of strength 80 wow so you're living on gravy for sure if you make it to 80 there's no question about it but the stark realities of getting older stark means outright there are outright realities that we face every day i'm thankful that uh, that she gave her daughter's hand to me in marriage But there was also another stark reality when I woke up the next day after I was married, I figured out something, I have more responsibility. Stark reality. And then you have children, and then you you look at life as you get older. Stark reality for me is next July, I'll be 50. Now, I don't know what that makes my mother-in-law feel like, but I'll be 50 in July. That's a stark reality. Chris, don't look so smug, because two weeks later you'll be 50, right? That's right, we know. Well, the Bible is replete with stark realities as well. And I wish I could always preach to you the smooth, soothing side of the sword, but I can't, because preach we must. And so today we definitely see the sharp side of the sword of the Word of God, and I hope that everybody will give attention to the reading. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I want to talk to you about stark spiritual realities about salvation before we read that let me remind you that this is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount so Jesus in the first 12 verses of Matthew 5 will spell out to us the characteristics of those who belong to the kingdom we like to call them beautiful attitudes we call them the beatitudes, but they're actually attitudes that you should have if you're a member of the kingdom of God i.e. blessed are those who mourn blessed are the peacemakers we know what that is And that's given 5, chapter 5, 1 through 12. And then he's going to give two metaphors of, of what we should look like in this world. Salt and light. And then he's going to illustrate by many different aspects what righteousness is required in order for us to be saved. You remember that statement? You must have a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he's going to spend time enumerating for us what that righteousness actually looks like. In other words, it's not external only. It must start in the heart. These things are inward transformations that Jesus makes in us and thus they begin to be lived out externally. So he's going to be relentless in teaching us what true righteousness is like and that's verses 21 through 48. And then he's going to give us some specifics in the Sermon on the Mount about giving about praying, about fasting, about materialism, about worry. Any worry warts in here? Yeah, probably. He's going to talk about wrongly judging others, and he's going to talk about prayer. He caps it all off with a golden rule, which we think means if nobody slaps me, I don't have to slap them back. But actually, doing to others as you would have them do unto you is a practical application of you have to do something. It's not responsive. it's action. As a believer, in other words, if you're truly saved, you will act and serve and do for others. And then when you get to Matthew seven, thirteen through 28, this is the concluding section on the Sermon on the Mount. And in this section, he's going to take all these contrasts and he's going to bring it to an ultimate focal point. And that focal point comes out in such a way that it demands a decision from the hearers. Not only those who listened to Jesus' sermon on that day, but also us today, sitting in this auditorium, it demands a decision. So there are four sections beginning in chapter 7, verse 13, that's going to go throughout the end. And the truth Jesus is attempting to drive home is this, which road are you on? After everything in the Sermon on the Mount, and all the different teachings on righteousness, and the understanding of the true kingdom of God, and the righteousness, and... In order, uh, he's talking about ways to help you think Christianly if you are a Christian. It all comes down to this focal point, which road are you on? Which teachers will you listen to? Are you on the hard road or are you on the easy road? What kind of tree are you? Do you produce good or bad fruit? What kind of claims do you make? Do you make only claims of word or do you make claims of deed? What are you going to build your life upon? Don't you know this one? Don't build your life on the sandy land. Right? Y'all heard that song. You got to build upon the rock. Are you all awake today? Yes. You have to build upon the rock. So really, what is Matthew 7? Beginning in verse 13 down through 28. It is a call to true commitment to Jesus Christ. That's what you're going to see. But there's perhaps no greater passage in the Bible that puts forth to us the stark realities of life and death like the two verses I'm going to read to you. Some people have called them terrible truths. Others have called them awesome yet awful truths about salvation. I simply want to call them, not to copy anyone, stark spiritual realities about salvation. Folks, this morning I want you to know clearly there are only two ways. There's not three, there's not four, there's only two according to the Word of God. There is the way that leads to life, and there is the way that leads to death. There's no neutrality, there's no three, four, five. There's only two ways. And ultimately, it's not a matter of what you say you believe or say you are. It really comes down to rea- the reality of which road are you actually on. The idea that the gospel is only something to be-, to be believed is simply not good enough. The gospel must be lived. I guess we could say that, again, here's the sharp side of the sword of the Word of God. And, again, I, uh, I, a lot of times I'd just rather be soothing to you. But we must preach what the Word of God has to say. John Stott says of this passage, Jesus Christ cuts straight across our easy-going syncretism. He says the cafeteria approach to spiritual realities and religions just will not cut it. Uh, The attitude that if it makes me happy, able to deal with myself, kind of lets me manage my own guilt and self-esteem, I can take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Folks, do you understand that is man-made religion at its worst? It really is. We can't pick based on our own predilections of what we're going to believe about the Bible and what we're going to say we accept it's not up to our own preferences so here's the deal that Jesus sets forward for us notice the Bible chapter 7 verse 13 enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What road are you on? Jesus sets the terms about the gate as well as the road that leads to life. We're not allowed to set the terms. Christ never said anything by accident, and what he said was sublimely premeditated. He knew nothing could be more calamitous than for the hearer to hear the Sermon on the Mount and all these incredible realities and maybe even bow in admiration but really never experience inwardly the reality of the Sermon on the Mount. So this epilogue is perhaps the most important part of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because you've got to do something with what you've heard in the preceding chapters. So, I have two simple points today. Oh, amen. (laughs) right? Two simple ones. That was classic. Here it is. Number one. You may not think they're so simple when I'm done, but here we go. There is a road that leads to destruction. Notice what the text says. The term wide or broad is used in the sense of a broad and wide street. I think the imagery needs to be more according to the language of the New Testament, how these words are used. It has to be used more than just that the opening is wide. What the writer is trying to picture for you is a five-lane boulevard that is just flooded with people. The road is wide and spacious, meaning it is easy to locate. It's easy to get on to this road. And because of its size, there's no limitation in the amount of baggage that one can have you ever gone through a turnstile at the airport or going in the bath pro I'm telling you can't have on much to get through those things you just, it's restricted and it's, it's, it's uh, those are tough but that's not true with this one you can take anything along with you whatever you please you don't have to leave anything at all behind and absolutely no effort is required to get on this road the implicitness of the ro- wide road is that it imposes no boundaries on what one thinks. Now catch me here. Everything Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount was was He designed it so that it would go into your mind and into your affections. So when it comes to the broad road it really doesn't matter what you think on this road. You actually uh, can say that nature is your thing and you're okay. You can say meditation is my thing and you're safe on this road or you think you are you are good you can get on this road you can say morality just do better religion is your thing and you can be on this road and even if you are a person of extreme sensuality you can be on this road as well you can be on this road as long as your thinking doesn't turn into value judgments against others right it's okay to compare and contrast philosophies But to say one is better than another is extreme extreme anathema to those who are on the broad way that leads to destruction. In other words, the relative is absolutized and the absolutes are relativized. That's what happens on this road. It imposes few boundaries regarding our conduct. It takes no effort to remain on this long, broad stretch. It inflicts upon travelers a deceit deceptive sense of freedom deceptive sense of freedom and independence but in the end the Bible says it's the way of death there's a lot of room on this road it's spacious and it's wide Uh, you probably won't get touched by anyone on this road Uh, have you ever been on an airplane especially one of those jump flights from Atlanta over I mean from Springfield to Atlanta we did this just a few weeks ago did we not I actually did it two times in the span of about a week I'm telling you, folks, I like my space. I don't like armpits right in my face. And I'm telling you, there's just something about space that we kind of like. Well, on this road, you got plenty of personal space, plenty of room for diversity of opinions, laxity of morals. There's plenty of tolerance. There's plenty of permissiveness. You don't have any boundaries or curbs of thought or character. You can travel with your own inclinations. You can travel with your own desires of your own heart. And I want to remind you that our culture loves this road. But I want to remind you that the irony is that on this road, one thinks you're free. You can set your own rules. You can do your own thing. But it leads to destruction. See it clearly. There's a way, as Proverbs 14:12 says, that appears right to a man. But the end thereof is the way of death. You can go all in on this road because there are no lines that you have to follow. And once you get on it, according to what the Bible has to say here about it being easy, is that there's no troubles. It's the convenient way. Jesus tells us where this road leads. The Bible expressly says here that this road leads to destruction. And folks, I want to remind you that Jesus is referring to eternal punishment. The road ends, but your soul doesn't end. It ends in the abyss if you are actually on this particular road. Now, some of us that are uh, more modern might say, why would Jesus want to spoil my happiness while I'm on this wide road? I mean, why would he be a killjoy? Well, folks, I want to remind you at first that in our culture, we have placed such an incredible uh, premium and virtue upon happiness. We make that out to be the number one thing in our country. Uh, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And anything that threatens that inner peace or happiness or self-fulfillment in us is rude and unkind and politically incorrect. And there's a reason why we want to tell people that they're on this broad way to hell. That's because we don't want them to go there. And the most unloving thing we could ever do is let their wrong be right for them. We have to be willing to tell the truth that there is a wide road that absolutely leads to destruction. Now, Jesus is love incarnate, right? He is. No greater love can ever be thought of than the Son of God laying aside His eternal glory and coming down to this earth to die for sinners like us. In this manner God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son his only the one of a kind unique son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life but he's not only love incarnate he is truth incarnate you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free he tells us that there's a broad road uh, that is effortless to get on it's convenient to be on but it's the way to death you're on your own you're autonomous You can do your own thing. There's no pangs of conscience. You're sailing alone through life. But Jesus will remind us that you're cruising toward eternal punishment if you're on this road. Though it's the wrong road, what does Jesus say about it? There are many. Y'all see that? I didn't make that up, folks. It's the stark reality of the text. There are many who are on this road. It's a road that is heavenly traveled. In fact, people prefer this road. You're never alone when you're on this road that leads to destruction. Again, eventually it's going to get to the edge of the abyss, which is eternal hell, and the traveler moves on even though the road stops. How many people are on that road? The Bible says many. What can we say about those who hear the gospel, the general call of those to be saved? Well, we could say that when the narrow gate was offered, they refused it. The opportunity to enter has passed. There are two roads, and today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Do you remember the parable of the ten virgins? I'm summarizing it greatly here, but it's in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1. You can read it. But there are five wise virgins who actually prepared for the bridegroom to come. Once they knew he was coming, they prepared themselves. They got their oil. They got their lamps ready. But there were five foolish virgins who did nothing. They didn't get the oil. They didn't get ready for it. And the wise virgins were asked by uh, the foolish virgins, once they knew the bridegroom was coming that night, we got to have some oil. Can we have some of yours? And they wisely say to them, no, you make your own preparations. But while they were out, the bridegroom comes and he shuts the door. And they come and they say, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. And the Bible says that the Lord says, I don't know who you are. And no entrance is given. Some of you need to wake up and realize that tomorrow you may not have a desire at all. Grace has been extended to you today because you're hearing one more time that Jesus is calling sinners into repentance. You get to hear one more time that there's a road that leads to destruction. It is grace that you're able to hear that today it is grace to you by God once again to tell us this I'm not gonna leave you down I'm gonna pick you up because the next part is the way of life that's why I did it in this order we're told first about entering the narrow gate but I wanted to talk to you about the way that leads to death first now there is a road that leads to life notice what the Bible says enter let's break this down enter through the narrow gate did y'all know that that's a direct command Now, we like to think that we can command our God how to function. But in reality, this is what God demands from the world that He made. Do you know know that God really has the right to demand from His people what He wants? He does. And here's what He demands. Jesus, preaching that day, the Sermon on the Mount, and wrapping it up, knew full well how mankind would think. And He says to them, Enter direct command. Now, I thought about this. Does this principle of two ways, and the fact that you should enter through the way of life, does it have an Old Testament backdrop? I'm glad you ask. It does, right? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight should be the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate Day and night, he shall be like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. Its leaves shall not wither, and whatsoever he does, it shall prosper. Verse 4, but the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. And he ends up by saying the righteous will never stand in the judgment, but sinners will stand in the judgment. And that final verse, verse 6, does it ever get our attention when the Lord says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There it is. Two ways. Moses, in one of his swan songs in Deuteronomy 30, will say to the people, I've set before you life and death. And then he says, choose life. Yes, drenched in the Old Testament. And Jesus will turn around and say, you must enter into the way of life at this particular gate. He knows the crowd has heard this incredible story, this, the incredible Beatitudes, the incredible parables and analogies and contrast of the kingdom. And here's the deal. Now are you going to commit your way to following the Lord Jesus Christ? And the tense of the mood of the verb highlights the urgency of the command. It's urgent that you follow Jesus and enter into this gate. There's an urgency to it. We are good at telling people... That they should decide on Jesus. But, and that's good because we can look at enter as initial salvation, can't we? And we're good at getting people to think about praying and deciding to follow Jesus. But we actually have a truncated view of Christianity. Therefore, we have a truncated view of the gospel. Because according to this text, entering the narrow gate may in fact describe initial conversion. However, once you enter this narrow gate, you're on a narrow path. You are on a path that leads to a destiny. And this should remind us that the gospel is not something only to believe, believe once. It is something, uh, or something to believe once. And then we, uh, we say, well, I, I got it right. I picked gate one, two, three, or 4. And I've made my decision and I'm good. But the Bible says this gate leads to a particular path of life. Well, herein we're cutting across the grain of what most... Quote unquote Christians believe in the U.S. They think, well, as long as I've got fire insurance, all is good. But what I'm trying to tell you, folks, is if you truly have entered in through the narrow gate, you're actually now on a narrow path that leads to a destiny. That means there should be a lifestyle that follows the entrance into the gate. And if there's not a lifestyle that follows the entrance into the gate, guess what? You never entered the gate. It's impossible. The gospel is not just praying a prayer and having your sins forgiven. The message of the Gospel is that you embrace Christ and you follow Him for the rest of your life, like James said up here. Not only that Ethan trusted Christ, it is that Ethan has submitted himself to the Lordship of Christ and that he intends to follow Him the rest of his life. Do you know there's no distinction in the Word of God between being a believer and being a disciple? Being a Christian is being a disciple. The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? there's no distinction in the Bible between it if a person doesn't follow Christ no matter how your opinion is of him you're not a Christian no amens well I'm telling you what the Bible says it's a stark reality but if we don't ever follow what did Jesus say follow me and I'll make you fishers of men what did Jesus say if any man would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and well we forget that in the US don't we everybody's a Christian because they know who Jesus is they believe in Jesus but has your life been radically transformed from the inside out do you have a righteousness that is greater than the described in the Pharisees if you do your life will not be external only it'll be inwardly driven to external that's what the Bible tells us now Jesus said narrow is the gate. Enter the narrow gate. The idea of narrow means restricted. If you've got a copy of the King James Version, King Jimmy, I was reading out of the ESV, I like the King James here, it says enter the straight gate. Now, we we define straight in many different ways, but this is a geographical straight. That means when you get to that point, it narrows. It is constricted if you're going to be on this gate it is something that should be seen as difficult and we know that in one sense to respond to the gospel is so easy you respond in childlike faith but have you looked at the fine print which is actually in the same font size as the other print in the Bible correct have you looked at it and it tells us that there's something difficult about this life that we're living it's restricted and small notice Luke's complimentary passage However, I think this is a much different occasion. But listen, you don't have to turn, but listen to Luke thirteen twenty-three. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, that's a profound question from Israelites, right? Because they thought they had a monopoly. And uh, most of them probably thought that salvation was only for them. However, and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Man, when I look at that verse, I said, Lord, I wish that wasn't in the Bible. That's one of those, oops, uh, hate to have to deal with that particular verse. Understand, the reason they cannot enter is because they don't enter through the narrow gate. They don't enter because they they have self-righteousness or they have sins that they're not willing for Christ to forgive or they have... uh, They're missing the entrance of the gate. Ultimately, they didn't follow by truth made right for them in the giving of the revelation of the Scripture. That's ultimately, which I'll teach you in a few moments. But that's what's going on. They did not enter through the straight gate. We like to ignore that. We also like to ignore the word that Luke actually uses. He uses the word agonize. So this is going to take contending, struggling to enter. One writer says, we have to strain with every nerve. It is urgent, it is difficult. Now my question is, what narrows the gate? Would it not have been better for God to make the gate wider? I mean, we look at that and we say, "Man, Lord, why not make it wider? If Jesus said it is narrow, what makes it constricted? What is it that makes it difficult to enter? And actually difficult once you get on the road. What makes it difficult? Well, is it a list of Southern Baptist do's and don'ts that constricts this road? For some of you, you'd like to say yes and amen, preacher. But that's not what it is. It's not narrow because you can't wear makeup. We like it when you ladies wear makeup, amen? (laughs) I mean... We do. There's nothing wrong with that. Is it narrow because you can't play cards? Or bingo? Some of you ladies, you don't like the preacher to know you play bingo, do you? I don't mind if you play bingo. Just don't be betting and gambling, right? Uh well, constriction means that you can't go to movies. Is that what it means? Well I'm telling you folks, what actually constricts and narrows the way is actually God Himself. We don't like to think about that, but it is true. And the narrowness to the gate is due to divine revelation. Do y'all know that I believe this book? From Genesis to Revelation? I want to tell you, this is the the divine speech given from God to His people. This is it. This is the narrow gate. Period. It's the word of the living God. That's That's why I wholeheartedly reject any other means, period. Church, no matter who it is... I take the word of the living God, the sharper than any two-edged sword. His doctrines are holy, precepts are binding, historics are true, decisions are changeless. It's the word of the living God. All of it is given for, to profit us. So God sets the parameters, does He not? When we consider the holiness of our God and our sinfulness, any attempt to widen God's mercy actually ends up destroying God's mercy. Did y'all know that? That God would save a sinner at all is nothing but grace. That a holy and righteous God would save anybody is all about mercy. God sets the parameters. Jesus said the gate is narrow. Please keep in mind that God didn't have to or need to put up a gate at all. We don't like to think like that, do we? but he didn't have to he's God he's absolutely self-sufficient in himself the Bible teaches us this about our God he is so ultimately it is God's word that restricts the gate I want to ask you a question, what is the gate? well in John's gospel he tells us that he is the gate meaning who? Jesus, amen, he's the door of the sheep and he says you must enter through me to have eternal life or you don't have it at all John would later say, He that has the Son has life. And he that does not have the Son does not have life. Please don't take from that or anything I've said about it being urgent or difficult to think that you can work to get this. Christ is the gate and the entrance is through the gate and that gate is all of grace. It is. It's all of grace. But entrance is through His way and through His terms. We can't make up what we want the entrance to be the entrance is given by Jesus the Bible says I am the way the truth and the life and no man will come to the Father except through me Jesus ladies and gentlemen is the gate the Bible says here you have to search for it to find it moreover the road is narrow once you get on this road it never broadens no matter how far or how long you travel on this road This gate, evidently, and road, is restrictive in some sense. There's probably some baggage that you absolutely can't take upon this road. The tiny gate is a perfect metaphor, I believe, for the Beatitudes. Why? Well, McLaren, the great preacher of a little more than 100 years ago, liked to poetically picture that the first two Beatitudes actually form the signposts the side posts of the gate and notice what those are and he opened his mouth and taught them saying blessed are those poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and blessed are those who mourn he liked to picture poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn as the side posts that hold up the gate now doesn't this cut across the grain of our of our world that number one you should look at your own life and know that you're you're spiritually bankrupt That's what poor in spirit means. You can't change your situation before God on your own. You need Jesus. And how about mourn? That word means to mourn over our sin. So either side of the gate is a brokenness of our condition before God that we can't save ourselves. And the other side is we ought to be marked as Christians by people who mourn over their sin. That restricts the gate, doesn't it? That the entrance is only through Christ. And we ought to be marked by being those who are poor in spirit that we say Jesus I need you there's no way to save my soul apart from you it demands sorrow over sin That's an indeed a small gate no one naturally likes to be poor of spirit and truly mourn over their sins I could ask you a question when's the last time you actually wept over your sins when's the last time you came down to the altar in local Baptist church and actually wept over your sin before God we must come to God holding nothing in our hands except our inadequacy and our own consciousness of our sins as a matter of fact you can't be saved without a consciousness of your sins That you indeed have sinned against God and him alone having entered the gate through absolute dependence of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf the traveler remains on a narrow road that's what the text says to us you gotta leave some stuff behind it's almost like you leave it behind so you narrowly pass through It's restricted. It's a narrow gate. If you enter in and trust in Christ, which is the only way you can, then you've got to leave your ability to cover your sin away because you can't do it. Only Jesus can. so it's like it's leaving behind the self-righteousness of Pharisees where you you think you can make yourself right before God, but it's also saying, God, you've got to do something with my sin in order to get on the straight and narrow. I think all true believers will work hard to align ourselves with the Kings demands once you get on this road the Lordship of Christ should accentuate not it shouldn't be that you say well I've been saved yesterday and I'm good Well, what about your life that you're living well if you belong to Christ then you should be willing to align yourself with what the master says and what the master says is that this road is actually narrow that means there's things that have changed once you came to know Christ. You know, it's a lot easier to be an unbelieving pagan husband. Isn't it? It says it. it says it's, it's easy, right? It's a, it's a lot easier to just be uh, a lost pagan woman, husband, wife. It's a lot easier just to do that. There's no attempt. Jesus to lure us on this road with assurances that it's not going to be difficult the Broadway is easy but the road that leads to eternal life Jesus said is difficult the truth is the Bible says in mark 834 that if you're going to follow Christ you got to take up your cross folks there's nothing there's nothing easy about that what is taking up your cross well that's not your next-door neighbor who gets on your nerves We like to think that's the Cantankerous Boss or the Obstreperous, whoever it is. It's not. It's actually identification with Jesus. You fully identify to the max, and you pick up your cross and you follow Jesus. That's what it means. This way is compressed. It's it presses in. That's the word on both sides. It's hard. Hardship and struggle are implied here. There's a struggle going on on this road Jesus said blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake or for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven now I don't want you to think that this is a repressive road because it's a glorious road however we are reminded that it's a compressed road that leads to life The paradise of God is found on a narrow gate by or through a narrow gate and on a narrow road. And both the entrance and the road are under the submission of Jesus Christ. Y'all get that? That is what's so vitally important about what Jesus teaches in the epilogue of the Sermon on the Mount. The Bible says there are few who find it. That's alarming, isn't it? That's a stark reality. I think we might say that any time in human history, Jesus' disciples have always been in the minority. Correct? I think uh, not only in the minority, but actually at times uh, a rejected and despised minority of those who actually publicly live for Jesus. J.C. Ryle wrote these words. Repentance and faith and holiness of life have never been fashionable. The true flock of Christ has always been small. It must not move us to find that we are reckoned peculiar and bigoted and narrow-minded. J.C. Ryle says, this is the narrow way. And he goes on to say, surely it is better to enter life with a few than enter destruction with a great company. Do y'all know when J.C. Ryle lived? 1890 was when he wrote that. and in that day in England everybody was considered a Christian but J.C. Ryle said that's not the case it looks fashionable as a matter of fact uh, may look good on the outside but the fact is the ones who truly live for Christ are seen as you know call me this call me that but don't call me narrow right and there's a sense where narrow is not a good term for you to be but when it comes to certain things especially the gate and the road that you follow, it must absolutely be narrow. So I want to remind you as a church, if you're living for Christ, don't think it's strange when you look around and find that there are not really many people out there who follow Jesus. This text is a challenge for all of us in our culture of easy believism. Right? It's a challenge for our culture when they push easy believism. We just put Jesus on the shelf as another God in case we've missed it. You can't ignore the many and the few in this text. You can't ignore the hard and the easy in this text. You can't ignore the narrow and the wide in this text. And by all means, whatever it takes, don't ignore life and destruction. These are contrasts that are in here. We live in a climate where the gospel has been minimized. We've made it easy where Jesus says, folks, hear me, it ought to be hard. We like easy. We like comfortable. But that's not what Jesus taught about the gospel. He taught that it was hard. When Jesus and Paul, would Jesus or Paul even recognize the gospel they preached if they came to most Southern Baptist churches on a given Sunday? And we have to be honest and say no. They wouldn't even recognize it in most gospel, in most Southern Baptist churches. Don't forget these verses as you articulate the gospel message to those you share the word with. Let's make sure that we haven't just said words, but that we've actually entered the narrow gate. And check this out. A narrow gate that ought to be a life of repentance. Not just repented one time. All of your life ought to be a life of repentance. A life of faith. A life of obedience to Jesus Christ. We don't get to make it up as we go the Christian life is lived under the Lordship of Jesus Christ or it's not the Christian life at all it must be let's not be guilty like Francis Schaeffer said that there Francis used to talk about the fact that you got two chairs and most people are in those two chairs we've got the the chair of conversion and then we've got the chair of heaven but he said sometimes there's a chair that slips in there in between and it's called the chair of materialism and here's how we live you know initial conversion and then we live materialistically the rest of our life and think that we're going to end up in the chair of heaven. Jesus is reminding us in stark language that that's not going to be the case. What is the case is that if you've entered in the narrow way, you will then, therefore, forever be on the narrow road. That leads to eternal life. Let me give you a couple things and we'll close her down. All right. I don't know what time it is. Are y'all, got, y'all got to go anywhere? Alright, here we go. On the narrow road, our thoughts about truth and God are enlarged and confined. Do you all know that? Truth is confined. Truth is not left up to the tyranny of democratic consensus. I don't care who wrote the book other than the Bible, right? It's not up to democratic consensus. Those who follow Jesus will not and may not believe most of what the people in this world believe, right? Right? And those on the narrow way will not be popular for their beliefs. For example, our thoughts about God are narrowed, right? Certain conceptions of God are true. Certain conceptions are absolutely false. Certain views of God are degrading to his personhood and who he is. Certain views are God-honoring. Just think about that for a moment. The God that we serve, would you ever dream that the God who controls all things would come down from heaven robe himself in human flesh and die a death that you deserved so that you could be forgiven of your sins. I'm telling you, folks, the true view of God is electrifying. It's not degrading. It is electrifying. And when, you're, when you have the truth of God poured in you through the Word of God, then that's the way you view Him. And there are certain ways out there in this world, I don't care how cute and pretty and fancy they are, they're degrading to our God no matter how fancy it looks that's, that's not giving God glory for who he is in his personhood what does give him glory is that you magnify him because he paid the penalty for your sin you know he's holy and righteous he's so holy that he cannot even look upon your sin Habakkuk too, and yet he condescended to this earth to save you from your sins that's electrifying what else can we do other than serve a God that would do that for us. Right? That should be our response to truth. Our thoughts about salvation are narrowed. We know that there's only one, only one way to be saved, and it's through Jesus Christ the Lord. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I've already said that, but what about Acts? Peter says salvation is found in no one else. Either Peter lied, God misled us, or that's the truth, and we need to tell the world that you can't be saved any other way. There's no universalism here. It's only through Jesus. Our affections are narrowed. For we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul. When there's conflicting loyalties, we choose God. We choose Christ. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul. Our affections are changed. The same is true with our conduct. There are some things we cannot do. Everything is not okay on this restricted road. No amens? But in our boundaries, we actually find liberation. Socially, sexually, and ethically. I am so glad that God made woman for man. And I am so thankful for the confines of marriage. Boy, there's more freedom there than you can ever imagine when you do it God's way. When you remain sexually pure until you're married, that honors the God who gave sexuality. You know that folks, we rob ourselves of the joy and fulfillment of life by giving ourselves away but on this narrow way that yes says that you shouldn't fornicate, that you shouldn't commit adultery. The reason it's narrow is because God knows what you need. He knows what fulfillment you need in life and you got to trust him. Girls and boys, don't give yourself away. Trust God. That he's got what's best for you. Don't take the cheap thrills and the kicks that the world has to offer you, whether it's drugs or sex or whatever that might be, they're substitutes for the real life. They're counterfeits given by the enemy. Our affections are narrowed. Conduct is narrowed. There's no abyss at the end of this life. Right? There's no eternal destruction, but life everlasting at the end of this road. That's good to hear. Amen? Amen? That's good to hear. John said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Wow, what an epilogue. There's no neutrality, folks. You're either on the road that leads to death, destruction, or the road that leads to life. Here's stark reality number one. Some people are on the road to heaven, but there are also people on the road to hell. Is that not true according to the text? Second stark reality is more people are on the road to hell than they're on the road to heaven. The vast majority of the people in this world are lost. And I know some people are going there, you might say, but I think hell should be reserved for the Husseins and the Hitlers and the Charles Manson types. Well, you've made a mistake. You've assumed that heaven is for religious people. Heaven is for people who have been saved by grace through faith. And they were rotten, good-for-nothing sinners that Jesus transformed by His grace. That's what heaven is for, right? And we have just enough religion in the U.S. to send us straight down the broad road that leads to destruction. Number three, there are many people who think they're on the road to heaven who at the end of this road will discover they were actually on the road that leads to destruction, i.e., back up to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Do y'all think about the reality of that? On this earth, you call me Lord, Lord, but you will not enter into heaven. Last word. Well, let me remind you of that. Some of you think, I'm going to be 102, I'm going to curl up my toes... And right at the last moment, I'm going to say, Jesus, forgive me for all my sins, and I'm going to be good to go. Did you know that more people die in work clothes than bed clothes? You're not promised tomorrow, folks. You're not. You're not promised tomorrow. Number four, the only time to get off the road that leads to hell and get on the road that leads to heaven is in this life. No matter what the Catholics teach, no matter what anybody else teaches, if you don't trust Christ on this side of the grave, you never will. This is the only time you can get on that road. Last word. Don't let me leave you down. This is an invitation. Is it not? Enter the narrow way. Jesus is giving you an invitation this morning to enter the narrow way with Him. Don't you love that part when it says, who will enter heaven? And the Lord says, whoever does the will of the Father. You know who said that? Jesus. And you know why? Why? Because he knew he was the way, the truth, and the life, and the will of the Father is only one. The only entrance into heaven is believe Jesus Christ. So this morning, let's keep it simple, like the kids believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Repent means to turn away and turn around. It means to moving from a par- a place of unbelief to a place of belief in Jesus. That's repentance. Receive. You believe. You repent. As many as received Him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe upon his name. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. You believe, you stand, and you say, I do believe, and don't stop there. And you follow Christ. Which road are you on? That's the sermon. Stark spiritual realities about salvation. Only two ways, only two roads. One leads to life, one leads to destruction. Which road are you on? Father, help us to think about your text of Scripture. To think about what it means to enter the narrow gate and to be on the narrow road that leads to life. Father, help us this morning. I can't save a soul. I can't change anyone's hearts. If I could transfer the people's hearts and minds from heaven from hell to heaven, I would do it. Only You can save sinners. Only your spirit can convict with your word to show us our need for you and how we need you, Jesus. You you ask us to enter into the gate. into the narrow way with him. The reality is, once we're in Christ, we're on the narrow way. We're in you and thus we live with you as our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.